My name is Josh Breflin. I'm the director of discipleship and program development at Reality Sports, as well as one of the pastors at Lake Taps Community Church just on the other side of the valley. In fact, that's how my relationship with Edgewood Bible Church began about seven years ago as Lake Taps partnered with your congregation to put on summer camp each year. So knowing Pastor Ryan over that time and now getting to know Pastor Jeff has been a great privilege. Earlier this morning, I had the opportunity to introduce you to Reality Sports, but for anyone was, who is not here, I'm going to try and give the 30-second the version of our Sunday school class. Reality Sports is a gospel-centered sports ministry that aims to preach the gospel and make disciples through the context of sport. So what that means is we believe God has called us to join the church in being the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. We provide sports teams and training as an opportunity for Christians like you to get involved in gospel-centered ministry outside the four walls of this church. Every single workout or training, a reality sports coach or missionary is opening the word and sharing the gospel with athletes and families, many of whom will never come to a church on their own. Last year, we hosted a pastor's luncheon to, to share that vision with local pastors and brainstorm how we could partner and pursue mission together. And Pastor Jeff was gracious enough to invite me to teach and preach here this morning. So Jeff, thank you very much. It's an honor and a privilege. Now I do need to say up front that this time together is gonna to be far less about reality sports as Sunday school was. I'm gonna mention just a little bit more about the ministry by way of introduction, but if you have any questions about who we are or what we do when we're done, I'll be happy to chat with you, but our time here this morning is gonna be reserved for the proclamation of God's word, amen? Showed a short video at the beginning of Sunday school about the testimony of a young man named Matt Voss. Matt came to us as a middle schooler, in fact, right here from Edgewood. He went to Edgemont Junior High, and he began training with us, often, though, skipping out on the gospel as we would open the word at the end of practice. Matt's testimony is pretty common. He wanted to come to our wrestling training, but he had no real desire to know or grow in the things of God. In fact, for Matt, God was a non-factor. He grew up in an unbelieving home, and as far as Matt was concerned, he was the king of his domain. Wrestling, winning, and self-glory were king in Matt's life. My testimony would be very similar. For 21 years of my life, I fought to be king of my world. I thought the idea of a creator God, not to mention a God who is living and active in the world today, was laughable. For me, wrestling, winning, and self-glory were also my king. And I imagine that if we're all honest, each of us would say that at some point in our lives, we wrestled with who the sovereign king of our life was. Now, it might not have manifested itself in idolatry of sport or success, but nonetheless, each of us fights for the throne of our hearts. And I think it's biblical, too. At the fall, instantly in a moment, a second kingdom came into existence. Everything Adam and Eve had ever known revolved around God and his being sovereign king. And then with one bite, one believed lie, both were pursuing their own throne, and it's been the same way ever since. In fact, Luke says in the book of Acts that the upside-down nature of the gospel is that it proclaims there is another king, and his name is Jesus. Our vision statement at Reality Sports is to turn the world upside-down through sport because we believe in that upside-down transformative power of the gospel. 
Our call is to go into the culture of sport and proclaim that basketball, baseball, soccer, or wrestling are not king, but rather Jesus is. When God allows that truth to sink in and gives the gift of faith, our lives are changed and we begin to live in light of that enthroned king. And that's precisely what I wanna look at with you today. The enthronement of King Jesus. My prayer is that as we join together to worship God and hear his word, that we would see and hear what I believe to be the greatest news in the whole world. The proclamation of a savior who is enthroned on high. And that as you recognize that he came to this world on a rescue mission, you would place your trust in him and submit to him as that king in every area of your life. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Awe-Inspiring Coronation of a Supremely Sovereign King. Because I hope that as we reflect on the truth of God's word, it would stir up in us a fresh awe at what God is like and how he works in our world. See, the truth is, I came to the understanding a long time ago that I'm not the king of my life. And that there is indeed a sovereign king that has been enthroned over the universe. But I also know that in this life, I have to constantly remind myself of that truth and apply it to my daily situation. But I also recognize that I'm one of the most forgetful people in the world when it comes to the gospel. I don't think it's just me. Have you ever noticed how often authors of scripture say things like remember, don't forget, and be reminded? We're a forgetful people. And so my aim this morning is to help us awaken the awe of a king who came to rescue the world. I want our awe to be awakened this morning by looking at the awe-inspiring coronation of a supremely sovereign king. Because here's the truth, and it's too good to wait for 40 more minutes. I have to tell you now, there is one who is fully in charge, who is in control and reigns as a supremely sovereign king. And the good news is he's patient and he's good and he's kind and he's fair and he's merciful and he's gracious and he's just. And we're gonna soak in that truth this morning. We're gonna bathe in the goodness and the weight of that and we're going to let that awaken our awe. Does that sound okay? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please turn them to Psalm 2? Psalm 2, I'm gonna be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. As you're turning there, let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that because of your goodness, because of your kindness, because of your patience, because of your grace, because of your mercy, we have the opportunity through your son Jesus' sacrifice to gather here this morning and hear the word preached. God, I pray that you would be glorified in the proclamation of the good news. God, I pray that, that your word would, would bring about every intent and purpose that you have for it. God, that it would penetrate our hearts and that we would leave here transformed, more like Christ today than we were yesterday. Spirit, would you accompany this message? Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Convict us of sin and righteousness as we hear of the enthronement of King Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity. Be honored, God, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 2 is what Bible scholars call a royal or kingly psalm, as it was written by King David to be read as a coronation for the enthronement of the new king in Jerusalem. For us outside of a monarchy with limited understanding to the events of royalty, this would be akin to the inauguration of the president of the United States. At that ceremony, the president-elect recites the presidential oath of office, a ritual that would be very similar to what we read here in Psalm 2. This coronation would be read before the people of Israel from the temple atop Mount Zion. And as we know of our biblical history, God made a covenant with King David declaring that a son of David would always sit on the throne of Jerusalem. And it's this covenantal promise of God that would make a coronation such as this a national treasure for the nation of Israel. As we listen to the reading of this coronation, we can see and hear how it would celebrate and honor God in light of a new Davidic king being established before the nation of Israel. David asks, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? A transition in power like this would no doubt elicit the response of neighboring vassal kings and peoples looking for an opportunity to overthrow the nation. David recognizes this vulnerability and yet also highlights that when the nations want to overthrow God's king, they're essentially wanting to overthrow God himself. The Davidic king was promised an earthly rule. One in which the promise to Abraham would come to fruition that through this nation, led by this king, all the earth would be blessed. We read in the coronation that God promises such a vast kingdom to the Davidic king as the nations are promised as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. And so David would end the coronation with a call to submit to the king of Israel and pledge their allegiance to him that they might know the peace promised to the nation. This was an evangelistic call from David. Know and honor our king so that you might know and honor our God. But for anyone who has read the Old Testament, we know that wasn't quite how things played out, was it? The nation of Israel failed in their call to be the priesthood to all nations. They failed in allowing the nations to see and experience the one true God through, through their obedience and allegiance to him. We know that after Solomon, the kingdom was divided and eventually the throne was overthrown. But for us to fully understand Psalm 2, we must recognize that this psalm is also a messianic psalm, meaning it's been understood to not only speak of the coronation of Israel's earthly king, 
but that it would one day speak of the enthronement and the coronation of Israel's divine king, the true anointed one, Jesus the Christ. So as we read Psalm 2, we have to recognize a, a deeper divine meaning to all of it. I want to suggest this morning that as we see the future fulfillment of Psalm 2, our awe of the goodness and sovereignty of the king will be awakened. Psalm 2 can be viewed as a four-act play, each with a change of setting and characters. Act 1 takes, us, takes place in a court full of kings and peoples, and we'll call this Act 1 the fight for sovereignty. Then in Act 2, the setting shifts to heaven where Yahweh speaks. We will call this Act 2 the promise of sovereignty. Act 3 moves to the top of Zion on the holy mountain where the king speaks and gives his edict. We'll call this Act 3 the enthronement of sovereignty. And then finally, the closing act brings us to the desk of King David. By himself, speaking to the kings and peoples of Act 1, and we're going to call this final act of the play Act 4, the right response to sovereignty. Four acts making up one divine drama, all pointing to the coronation of a supremely sovereign king. Here we go, act one, the fight for sovereignty. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Act one takes place in an international court with the leaders and rulers of the world raging and plotting. They've set themselves up and taken counsel together against who? The Lord and his anointed one. The rulers and leaders are devising a plan against Yahweh, the one true God of the universe and his anointed one, the Hebrew word Messiah. These worldly powers are committing intentional acts of rebellion, devious methods of defiance, and every single one of them is aimed at God and his anointed. And so we must ask, for what reason are they raging and plotting, planning and devising? Verse 3 tells us so that they might tear off their chains and throw off their ropes. As we read that, our mind's eye goes to this idea that the Lord and his anointed one have these kings and rulers in chains as if they're prisoners. But then I, that might not be the best understanding of those verses. As you study the commentaries in and you read guys who know Hebrew much better than we do, they, they say that the proper way to envision these words would to see the earthly kings under a yoke. That means the nations and people are not raging and plotting against the Lord because they're prisoners in chains, but rather because they have an owner and they're in a yoke. See, a yoke is something that a farmer would put on a beast of burden that it owns to control it and direct it. The truth is the rulers of the world are in a bitter fight for sovereignty because they recognize there's a supremely sovereign king who owns them and is in control, and the nature of every single king is rebellion against such external control. That's what we're reading here. We could say that the rebellion in the first three verses is because of the idolatry of self-sovereignty. This rebellion is, becoming, is coming out of an idolatry or worship of self-sovereignty. And I need to make a point here that's very important this morning. As we read about the nations and the peoples and the kings of the earth and the rulers, we can't limit that audience to those who wear gold crowns and that are literally overseeing nations and governments. See, the truth is every single one of us suffers from the idolatry of self-sovereignty. 
Every one of us has a part of our heart that hates the supreme sovereignty of the Lord and his anointed. In our sinful nature, in the, in the nature we were born with, apart from the forgiveness and purifying of God, we hate, we despise, and we plot against any sovereign authority that is over us and tells us how to live and what to do also. The human heart does not want to give up its sinful position as king. That was true of my testimony. That was true of Matt's testimony. And it's true of every single one of our testimonies. In our sin, when it comes to the sovereignty of God, we hate it. We rebel against it. And we act just like these rulers we're reading about in Act 1. And yet as we keep walking through this psalm, we're going to see that the supremely sovereign king is patient and good and kind, and he invites us to himself despite this fight for self-sovereignty. We're gonna see as we keep studying this morning to come to the throne of Jesus and to receive his grace as a free gift, there takes a continual understanding and confession that we hate the sovereignty of the king. See, if I don't daily unite my heart to his spirit, and say, allow me to submit myself to the sovereignty of your kingdom today, O Lord. I will begin to take court just as the rulers of the world do here in Psalm 2. And I will fight for my own supreme sovereignty. This is the very message we proclaim to our athletes, parents, and coaches day in and day out. We have to fight the urge to rule as our own sovereign kings in sport and in life. And yet... Despite the fight for sovereignty, we see in verse 1, this raging, this plotting, this devising is all in vain. A few students from our church have been meeting and memorizing the New City Catechism on late start mornings before school. And the ultimate truth of the whole entire Bible as it relates to the supreme sovereignty of the king is summed up in question 1 of the New City Catechism. The question reads, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer, those students would tell us that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to his anointed one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. George MacDonald, the Scottish author that was said to have influenced C.S. Lewis's thoughts and writings most, wrote that the one common conviction of everyone in hell is I am my own. Every single person that lives their life apart from God shares one same conviction. I am my own. And don't we see that in our culture today? I know it's rampant in the sports culture. And I'm sure you would just say the same thing in whichever context you find yourself in. But the scriptures teach an entirely different reality than that, don't they? Genesis 1, 27 says that God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. As creator, God is also owner. Romans 14, 7 and 8 says, For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. And then finally, Paul makes it explicitly clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, when he says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. As we can see, the scriptures explicitly teach against any sort of personal autonomy or self-sovereignty. Now, I'm talking to everyone this morning. But young people, I'd like you to listen to me especially close here. 
the world around you is saying and will only continue to tell you more and more loudly that you are your own person and that you're free to do whatever you want and that you don't have to submit to anyone. See, you're gonna be encouraged to start your own businesses and to work for yourself so you don't have to take orders from anyone. You're gonna be told you can do anything you want with your body because it's yours and no one has any say over what you should do with your body. But listen to me. You have to hear this this morning. That is one of the greatest lies the world has ever told. See, every single one of you, of us, is not our own, but was made by God, for God. And all of the fighting we could ever do against the sovereignty of the Lord and his anointed is in vain. To understand why this fight for sovereignty is in vain, we must continue through this divine drama. Act one was the fight for sovereignty. The fight for sovereignty. Act two is the promise of sovereignty. Act two switches settings from the earthly court holding the world's kings to the heavenly court where Yahweh himself sits. And as act two opens, we wonder, what's going to be the response of this heavenly divine character as the world's rulers and kings rage against him? Is his response one of worry or fear or anxiety? Are we gonna find God pacing back and forth, nervously wondering what might come of such plotting and planning to overthrow the sovereignty of he and his anointed? By no means. Verses four through six. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He laughs and he ridicules them. That means he laughs and makes a mockery of them. For the Lord in heaven, there is a comedic quality to the silliness of such a fight for sovereignty from those who are in no way sovereign. For God, this is laugh-worthy because of how vain the plot really is. I've heard one pastor illustrate our point this way, and I think it's very helpful. You're familiar with the book, Gulliver's Travels. Lemuel Gulliver was a captain of a mighty ship, and on one adventure, Gulliver got shipwrecked on the island of Lilliput. Do you remember the story? As Gulliver's ship is wrecked on the beach of Lilliput, he's knocked unconscious and finally awakens, tied down to the beach by his hair. As Gulliver is tied down, tiny little Lilliputians begin putting up ladders around his body, climbing up onto his chest. These little people, barely bigger than one of his fingers, construct a cart to take Gulliver to the capital of Lilliput to see the ever-feared Lilliputian king. Now this king, again, barely bigger than the finger of Lemuel Gulliver, begins barking out orders and mistreating Gulliver in such a way that completely disregards the fact that with one swipe of his hand, he could completely obliterate the entire Lilliputian empire. And yet here we have a king who, because he is only slightly bigger than the rest of the Lilliputians, believes he is the biggest, baddest thing in all of the land, and if we're wise, we will recognize the utter insanity of it all. But I hope we also see this morning that our fight for sovereignty, our raging against the Lord and his anointed is as crazy as the Lilliputian king pointing his tiny little finger in the chest of Sir Gulliver. And what is God's response? He laughs and he mocks because he knows the audacity of such a fruitless attempt to gain self-autonomy. 
This God who sits in the heavens is being contrasted with the tiny little Lilliputian kings of the earth, and he laughs. Did you know the Bible mentions a number of times God laughing? It does. And what's even more interesting is that every time it is said of God that he laughs, it's in response to the wicked seeking the idolatry of self-sovereignty. Listen to a couple examples, Psalm 37, 12 and 13. The wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him because he sees that his day is coming. Or Proverbs 1, 24 through 26. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention, since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction, I in turn will laugh at your calamity. Yahweh sits in the heavens and laughs, and then his laughing turns into action, and it says he speaks to them in his wrath or his anger, and he terrifies them in his fury. The Lord enthroned in heaven begins to speak to these kings and people through words and acts brought about by his anger that is meant to terrify them and have them take notice of their idolatry of self-sovereignty. The words for wrath and fury carry with them the notion of jealousy. And that's exactly how we should understand it this morning. As the Lord who is seated in the heavens, Yahweh is a jealous God, meaning he cares so deeply for his people that when they pursue other gods, and they seek to sit under their own self-sovereignty, rather than recognizing him as the supremely sovereign king, he gets jealous and angry and seeks to shake them awake to see that he alone is deserving of their worship and their allegiance. It's this wrath and fury that causes him to say, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. As for me is what we call the emphatic I, meaning God is emphasizing his actions towards and against the actions of the rulers of the world. They seek to rage and plot and be sovereign kings, but God says, as for me, I am setting my king to rule the world, which is massively important to remember as we look out around our culture and our world and see chaos. I don't know about you, but the craziness of the cultural moment we find ourselves in tests this notion of sovereignty for me. See, if we can't rest in the fact that there is a king over all kings and a lord over all lords and a power over all earthly powers, then I'm afraid we could let the madness of such a cultural moment overtake us in fear. But there is a God who is sovereign over the whole thing and says that he works all things together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. See, in essence, what God is saying in the second act of Psalm 2 is, let the rulers of the world strut. Let the terrorists terrorize. Let nations jockey for nuclear power. My king is set on the earth, and no one will challenge his supreme sovereignty. Every king is under the rule and reign of my king. Every Lord is under the sovereignty and direction of my Lord. The confidence and awe of God's people, despite the chaos of what we see happening all around us, rests in God himself, who is unmoved by the happenings of little Lilliputians. I don't know about you, but this brings me comfort and peace in the madness of our cultural moment. 
I hope this is awakening our awe this morning. Yahweh is sitting in heaven, watching his creation fight for sovereignty. And the insanity of all of it causes him to laugh in anger. And yet, what this says is he graciously and lovingly involves himself in our world and establishes the Messiah as his king. Supreme sovereignty has been set in place by Yahweh, setting in place his king. Did you hear that? Supreme sovereignty has been set in place by Yahweh setting in place his king. And therefore, we stand in awe, recognizing the upside-down nature that just over 2,000 years ago, God set into motion the enthronement of the supremely sovereign king to save the world. That is the good news of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, was born in a manger to be enthroned as a king, and he came to invite people into his kingdom and he lays down his life for his people the gospel says that the king lays down his life for his kingdom and that's good news that is good news act two the promise of sovereignty i hope this is making sense this morning and i hope as we see god responding to the the sinful fight for sovereignty by sending his king to engage in this world, our awe is beginning to be stirred. Act three is the enthronement of sovereignty. Act three takes us to the very top of Mount Zion, to, to where the coronation service of the newly enthroned king would take place. And as the lights come up, we hear the voice of the anointed one himself. Verses seven through nine. I will declare the Lord's decree he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, starting in verse 11, we have what Bible scholars refer to as the Davidic covenant summarized. It says, when your time comes to be with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who is one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will not remove my faithful love from him as I removed it from the one who was before you. I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever and his throne will be established forever. Now, as we mentioned earlier, what we know of Old Testament history is that we never see the Davidic covenant becoming fully realized because after Solomon, there's no descendant of David on the throne of Israel ever again. But what we have happening in Act 3 is the forward-looking interpretation of the Davidic covenant fully realized in the Christ. From the top of Zion, the anointed one declares that Yahweh has set him in place as king and has proclaimed that not only is he the sent Messiah, but he is God's son. As we look forward to this future coronation, we see Jesus the Messiah now publicly declaring his relationship with Yahweh, alerting the kings of the earth that this anointed one is no puppet of Yahweh, nor is he a usurper to the throne, but rather he is Yahweh's supremely sovereign son, fully deserving of the kingdom he has inherited. It's this very kingdom that's described in verse 8. King Jesus proclaims that at the moment of the coronation, the Father declares he will make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth will be his possession. 
That means there's not a single place on the face of the earth that Yahweh's king does not reign. The scriptures call him the king of kings because every ruler's throne sits under the one enthroned over the face of the whole earth. And then in verse 9, the coronation ceremony concludes with this promise from Yahweh to his sent king. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. Take in the drastic distinction of the materials mentioned in this promise. Jesus is said to rule with a scepter of iron, smashing the pieces of fragile pottery. What we can assume from a description like this is the fight for sovereignty we witnessed in Act 1 would not in reality be much fight at all. This promise is speaking to the end of time when this king will begin judging all those who have not bowed their knee to him as king. Revelation chapter 2 says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery just as I have received this from my father. The rule of God's Messiah brings with it stability even if he has to bring it about by force. But here's the good news this morning. And what I believe will continue to awaken our awe and have us stand in amazement of God's gracious plan to send his son to our world to rule as our king. When Jesus was sent to the earth the first time, as that humble baby, he came as the Lord's anointed. He came as the Messiah. But what's so amazing about God's divine will is that this Messiah, this anointed one, came not to condemn the world, as John 3, 17 says, but to save it. That means though he was anointed at his coming, God in his patience and in his grace is withholding that iron scepter, allowing all of those who are like sheep without a shepherd to come to him and find peace, to submit to him as king, to enter into the kingdom of God by faith and know the peace that is promised through him. At Jesus' first coming, he was anointed as the Messiah, but according to God's plan of salvation, Jesus the Christ had to endure the cross before he could don his crown. Upon his resurrection and ascension, Jesus took up his place at the right hand of the throne, but there is a reality that we are awaiting the coming of King Jesus a second time. And this second coming will not be like the first. At this second coming, Jesus will not come as a humble baby, but rather as the enthroned king, coming with that scepter of iron, ready to bring with him all those who have submitted to his supreme sovereignty and to judge and condemn those who continue to seek and pursue the idol of self-sovereignty. It's this truth of the second coming and the manner in which the Lord's anointed will return that brings us to the final act of our divine drama. Act four, the right response to sovereignty. In this final act, we find ourselves looking in at King David sitting at his desk, quill in hand, writing an urgent plea to the kings and rulers of the world. Verses 10 through 12. So now kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. This section of scripture begins with, so now. This could be read as therefore, 
or because of everything I just said, because the fight for sovereignty is in vain, because Yahweh has, has placed his king atop Zion, because that king has been given rule over the whole earth and he is patiently waiting before he comes back and judges. So now, O kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. You can hear the desperate plea of the psalmist, can't you? Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. There is great concern for the eternal well-being of those he's writing to. There's our word this morning, awe. The warning of the psalmist is to serve the Lord. This Lord who enthrones his supremely sovereign king with reverential awe. Other translations say serve him with fear. Fear and awe paired with rejoicing. Isn't that an odd combination of words? Serve with fear, rejoice with trembling. One preacher says of this text, relating to God in fear without joy is torment. But to relate to God in joy without fear is presumptuous. It makes sense to me, though. As we recount the things we've just read, the fact that we are like little Lilliputians in the face of a giant God, that he rules and reigns in perfect righteousness, that he promises to judge and condemn all of those who are against him, I begin to feel a real sense of fear. But when I realize how patient and good and kind and gentle this king is, when I realize that he came as a shepherd and that he is patiently offering salvation to all nations and all peoples, that he had to endure the cross to receive his crown, I can't not rejoice. One psalmist says it like this, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. My fear comes from understanding how big God is, how holy he is, how righteous and perfect he is, and how imperfect I am. And it says he loves me as I fear him. That's great news. The anointed one of the Lord loves me and wants me in relationship with himself. Then the psalmist closes with this authoritative command. Pay homage to the son. The ESV interprets it as kiss the son. Said another way, pledge allegiance to the son. In times of the monarchy, one would pledge their allegiance and honor to the king by getting down on their knee in a position of humility and kissing the hand of the king, showing him that they were submitted under his sovereignty and that they were allegiant to him as king. The psalmist says, kiss the son. Respond with submission and allegiance to the supremely sovereign king of the Lord. You know what this looks like practically? Here's exactly what I think this looks like. Luke chapter seven. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner 
found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them, and anointing them with the perfume. Here's this prostitute who encounters King Jesus, and she begins to weep because she knows how unworthy she is in his presence. She recognizes that supreme sovereignty is sitting across from her, and she does the only thing she can think to do in that moment. She humbles herself. She serves him with fear, and she kisses the son. She kisses the son. She pledges her allegiance to him. She believes what he says. She commits her life to him, and she kisses the king. You know what Jesus says in response? He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Pledge allegiance to the son. Kiss the son. If you're here this morning, there's a reason the supremely sovereign king wants you to hear this message. Kiss the son. Be allegiant to him. Stop fooling yourself thinking you can overcome his sovereignty and that you make a better king of your life. We read, pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. There will come a day when the patience of the Lord runs out. But as of right now, in this moment, God is revealing to us his word and it says to submit to him and kiss his son. And then the psalmist writes these final words. All who take refuge in him are happy. Other translations say blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Notice there's not refuge from him. It does not say all who find refuge from him will be happy, but rather all who take refuge in him will be happy. There is no refuge outside of the Son. Refuge, salvation, and rescue is only found in him. And so I have to ask, have you taken refuge in the Lord? I would be remiss not to ask, have you kissed the supremely sovereign king this morning? You have to answer that. Don't let another day go by. Don't let another moment go by without humbling yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord. Do not pass up this opportunity to pay homage to the, to the supremely sovereign son. I want to suggest that awakening the awe of Jesus' supreme sovereignty has to be an intentional, purposeful part of our life. Therefore, there are three things this morning I want us to, to actively apply to our life from today's sermon. To help us awaken the awe of Jesus' supreme sovereignty, there's something I think we need to reject, there's something I think we need to receive, and there's a way in which I think we need to respond this morning. This morning, we need to reject the notion that we are autonomous and can pursue the idol of self-sovereignty. We need to reject this idea that we can live in the kingdom yet not be fully allegiant, submitted, and sold out for the king. 
This goes for those who have never submitted themselves under the mighty hand of God, but also for those who are Christ followers. We have to reject the temptation to slip back into thinking we are our own. We have to recognize that there are deep recesses of our hearts that that continue to seek self-sovereignty that we've maybe never handed over to the king to rule and reign over. And I just want to say we have to reject that way of thinking. If the king is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We can't have one foot in the kingdom and not serve the king. We have to reject that way of thinking. Secondly, we have to receive the promise that refuge is found in Jesus alone. At this moment, in this place, Jesus is still offering refuge for all who put their trust in him. The word says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Receive the forgiveness of the king. Receive the blessing of living in his kingdom and receive the promise of eternal life with him. And then lastly, we need to respond this morning. We need to respond by paying homage to the son. Pledge your allegiance to him over everything else. Serve him. Fear him. Celebrate him. Be an ambassador of the king. That means go outside the kingdom and tell everyone you meet how great and kind and gentle and loving and gracious and merciful your king is. Love the king and kingdom, but look for ways to be outside that kingdom. Living among those outside the kingdom, loving those outside, inviting them in and calling them to reverential awe of your king. See, whether it's through sport or business or homemaking or anything else, proclaim the gospel and make disciple makers for the glory of the king. Stand in awe of the loving kindness of the supremely sovereign king today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you that you have enthroned your son as king. We praise you that he endured the cross on our behalf and yet now wears the crown. And and at the same time, we look forward to the day where he ushers in that rule and reign to the new heaven and new earth where we live in a physical, manifested, consummated kingdom of God, worshiping the king face to face, being with him in full glory. But until that moment, would we be ambassadors of the king? Spirit, would you embolden us and empower us to go outside the walls of the kingdom to proclaim how good this king is, to proclaim that he is still patient, he is still kind, he is still gracious, and he's inviting people to pay homage to him. Spirit, we need your help. Search our hearts. Let us know if there's any recesses or, or crevices that we have not submitted to you as king. Convict us of that, O Spirit. Help us to repent and kiss the son. We love you because you first loved us. And we worship you this morning because you alone are worthy to be worshiped. Help us respond to the gospel now. In Jesus' name, amen.